0: Well, about two and a half years ago, my wife and I were expecting our second daughter, and um, at this point, we were about nine months along in the pregnancy, and I get this call from my wife. She works at Dactronics, and she said, hey, I'm not, I'm not feeling the greatest. I'm going to head home and, and work from home. So me being the loving, caring, supportive husband that I am, I thought, okay, on my lunch break, I'll run home and just check on her. And so I go home and as a husband, I feel like during pregnancy, there's always this kind of thing like you're not sure how to help, right? So I did the only thing I could think of that might be helpful, and that was to cook a half pound of bacon on the stove because I thought, I would love the smell of bacon, I'm sure, right? If I was in a moment of, of not feeling quite right, just bacon makes everything better. I don't know if my wife, who was nine months pregnant, I don't know if she appreciated the smell of bacon as much as I did, uh, but that's her loss. Uh, so I'm, I'm cooking bacon, and from the other room, I hear my wife call, um, I think it's time. And I was like, okay, this is the second time around. I've got to experience this time. I dive into action, grab some clothes, get stuff in the car. And, and, and my, my lovely wife, she takes her time, right? She's grabbing a couple things. She goes, you know, I think, I think I'm going to put on my out-of-office auto response on my email. And so she's logging in on her, on her computer. And, and I told her, I said, Lauren, I, work will understand. Like, let's go. Because we had to drive to Sioux Falls where we'd been going to the doctor and had all our appointments and had planned to deliver down there. So we still have like an hour and 20 minute drive. So I'm like, all right, let's get in the car. We get in the car and we get on the interstate. And this is kind of fun, to be honest, right? Because this is the one moment in your life where it's like a get out of a ticket free card. Literally, my wife is in labor in the car. So I'm like, all right, I mean, this is the one chance. Let's, let's take advantage of this. I kept it reasonable, right? We were just south of 90 miles an hour, so I was still under control. And we, we get behind a police car, so I slow down, and I look at Lauren, and I say, hey, do you want me to call? And I'm imagining in I had this epic scenario of a police escort right to the hospital, and we're flying through traffic. I was like, I can call. I'm sure they'll, they'll take us in. She goes, no, 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 it's not, it's not that urgent. She said, I'll be fine. Let's just relax. So we get just to the north edge of Sioux Falls, like kind of by Interstate 90, and she says something about, like, I feel like the baby's moving, Right? So me, I think, okay, a little more urgency. I pick up the pace again. We get off the exit in Sioux Falls, and my wife says these words that are burned into my mind. She says, I need to push. And I said, no, 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 no. You can't push. You can't push, right? As if my words will somehow keep this baby inside of her from being born right there in the car. And so now I go into full-blown panic mode, right? I start weaving in and out of traffic, just driving like a crazy person because I think, I'm going to deliver this baby in the car. I don't have anything to cut the cord with. What do I catch the baby with? I don't know how to do this. And I panic. So I'm weaving in and out of traffic, and I get behind a school bus, and I'm blocked in. And so I do the only thing I could think to do, and that's to start laying on the horn, right? And there's this bus full of kids that are like, what is happening? And at this point, my wife starts hitting me going, stop it, stop it, stop it, right? But I'm panicked. And so I I come around the bus and I think, sorry, kids, I love Jesus, I love you, but my wife's having a baby, right? (laughs) So we're headed to the hospital, and and I call the hospital, and I say, listen, we're on our way. This is urgent. My wife is going to have this baby, hopefully there, right? We're hoping it's not in the car. So I said, please, 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 have a wheelchair ready, have someone ready to go. So we pull up to the hospital. Lo and behold, there is no wheelchair. So I run inside and the beloved woman at the front desk, she looks at me and she goes, you must be dad, right? <laughs> so apparently the panic is there on my face and I have to stop and say like, Jesus, give me patience, right, <laughs> and so I look at this woman, I say, ma'am, like, this, is, this is urgent, my wife is gonna have this baby do you have a wheelchair? I grab a wheelchair, run out, bring her in. And she goes, okay, I've got this uh, uh, clipboard if you would fill out this paperwork. Whew, again, deep breath. Oh, ma'am, we're going to have this baby in your lobby if you make us fill out this paperwork, right? Like, we, we got to go. And, and she's still not taking it seriously until my wife yells out in the lobby, I need to push right now. And at that point, the front desk lady goes, okay, let me see if we can do something here. And she picks up the phone and says, hey, we have a code OB in the foyer. And and out of the the door, it felt like it was in slow motion, comes a midwife. She's running, right? And so she gets there, gets the wheelchair. We get in the elevator, and my wife dives on the floor. And it's like, all right, it's go time. We're doing this right here on the elevator floor in the hospital, which elevator floors are super clean, right? No, not at all. So fortunately, the the midwife has a blanket. And meanwhile, I have now gone from panic to just being passive, like in shock. Like I'm in the corner of the elevator, like, ah... I'm not sure what you want me to do. There's a baby in an elevator. We didn't have a baby when we came in. We have one now. This shouldn't be here. And and I, at this point, I'm so like from panic to being passive, like I just start laughing and crying all at the same time. we just had a baby in an elevator. And I go to the midwife and I kind of forced her to give me a hug, because I don't know what else to do. So I give her this big hug, and she like I pinned her arms in and she's trying to hug me back. And I told her, I said, this was amazing. We just, we had a baby in an elevator. And finally, they got me to calm down, and we celebrated this moment as a family. But I want you to notice my response. It was this response on the one hand of pure panic, going into overdrive. Okay, we got to do something, and I did a lot of things, almost none of which was constructive. On the other end of the spectrum, once I settled into panic, it became this place of passiveness. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to take action. I'm just going to stay out of the way. And so when I thought about this story, I think it, it applies to the series that we've been going through for such a time as this. So you saw those news clips about school shootings and about protests and about things that are being uh, run through the legal system that we uh, have trouble with. And, and there's all sorts of these things. And, and in such a time as this, sometimes we look at culture and we go, I'm not sure how to respond. And sometimes the church has responded with panic. We've got to do a lot of things. We've got to take a lot of action, but it's not thought through and it's not discerned. And so we we go into panic mode. For others of us, we say, okay, culture is complicated. There's lots of issues, there's lots of things. I'm not sure what to do. And so some of us just go, I'm just going to not get involved, I'm just going to disengage. And so much like my reaction in that story, I think for some of us, we're, we're caught between panic on the one hand and passiveness on the other, not sure how to take a step forward in the times in which we live. So here's the question I want to ask us this morning. For such a time at this, as this at this time, at this place in history, what does the world need from us as believers? How are we to begin to respond and to interact and to engage in the culture in which we find ourselves enmeshed? And so this morning, I want to challenge us on a way of taking action that I think is really important in the times in which we live. And I think the first component that we have to to hold to, the first thing that we have to do, is to remember our mission. We have to remember our mission. If you read Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, it says this. It's Jesus speaking to the disciples, and he says, Go. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And so in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus' last words to his disciples is one of go, go into the world, make disciples of all people. And so we have to remember our mission that first and foremost, we are a sent people. So on a Sunday morning like this, this isn't just a fun moment to be encouraged and have a good time. This this is a missional moment. We are gathered in this moment. We are hopefully equipped by the Word of God, and we are sent out from here to minister to the world. So first and foremost, we have to remember our mission. We are a sent people. And as a church, you hear this language every Sunday that we talk about, about encounter grace, grow in grace, become grace givers. That's our attempt as a church to help keep the mission of the gospel at the forefront of our thinking. So I want to draw this out for us uh, visually to help us get a sense of what I mean by remembering our mission. What is our mission? So I want to draw out the the spiritual journey of a person uh, on a spectrum, okay? So if a person's spiritual journey was on a numbered spectrum from minus five, zero, to plus five. Someone who's at a minus five, uh, this is someone who's totally, completely lost. We might say, perhaps this person is an atheist. Uh, They don't believe at all in Jesus. They have no desire for anything religious. Then at minus four, you might have an agnostic, a searcher, a doubter, an inquirer. And then there's this moment at zero where someone experiences conversion, right? They come to know Jesus as their Savior, after this, there are steps that a person can tangibly take in their spiritual journey about getting integrated into the life of the church, uh, learning spiritual disciplines, learning what it is to serve, understanding your spiritual gifting. And ultimately, we hope that people come to this place of Christ-likeness. And Christ-likeness is all about spiritual maturity. And so what we hope is that there's a point in a person's life, we I call it a catalytic moment, Right? There's this moment where someone encounters grace. Someone who's far from Jesus has this moment. Maybe it's a message. Maybe it's someone sharing the gospel with them. Maybe it's the Spirit bringing conviction. Maybe all of a sudden they begin to understand the Word of God as someone speaks it to them. And so there's this catalytic moment, and someone begins to move in their spiritual journey towards this place of knowing Jesus. And ultimately, like I said, we hope they end up here, but this process is called growing in grace. And it's a continual process of freshly encountering God's grace until we get to this place of Christ-likeness. But church, I think this is where we get stuck. We imagine this movement towards spiritual maturity, and we think, okay, once we get here, we've arrived. And for some of us, this becomes an academic exercise. We think, okay, I need to know more Bible, I need to understand more theology, and I need to serve more. And so we get sort of wrapped up in this works-oriented thing of know more, read more, do more, serve more, thinking that it's about infilling us as how we continue to grow. But if this is where we stop right here, we have missed the mark. Because what we miss in this is the call of Jesus, the commission of Jesus to go. So you'll notice we have encounter grace, growing grace. What's missing from our vision statement? Give grace, right? So if we're going to take seriously the call and commission of Jesus, we have to recognize that this is a cycle that calls us back towards lost people. And so giving grace is all about moving towards a world and moving towards people who are far from Jesus to tell them about the hope and the glory and the truth of the gospel. And so true Christ-likeness is about a movement back towards a lost world and back towards people who are spiritually unresolved and don't know Jesus as their Savior. And so one of my hopes this morning in the message is that we leave today with a new sense of missional urgency. Right? We talk all the time about John 3.16. Probably a lot of us could quote that. For God so loved the world. Listen, if we believe that God loves the world and if we are going to be Christ-like, we better learn to love the world and learn to love people around us. And we better learn what it means to go back towards lost people, to tell them about grace so they can grow in Christ's likeness and tell others about Jesus who encounter his grace, who grow in Christ's likeness, and this cycle repeats itself in a sort of viral out movement of the kingdom of God. Church, we have to remember our mission. It's not optional. It's the call and the commission of Jesus. So if we're going to remember our mission and if we're going to take it seriously, I think the next thing we need to do, and this got dropped from your note guide, so please write this in. This is really important. We need to remember our mission, and we need to run the race with great faith. When I say run the race, I'm talking about this race of encountering grace, growing in grace, becoming grace givers. This, this journey of our spiritual life, we have to run this race with great faith. And here's why I think this is so important. It's because faith puts what we believe into action. I think often we reduce faith to a sort of internal cognitive, yes, I mentally believe something, but belief always, or faith always translates belief into action. If you go and read Hebrews chapter 11, a lot of times people call it the faith chapter. It's a bunch of stories of people who did amazing things in Scripture. If you read Hebrews 11, one of the things you notice is it's a lot of action verbs that talk about how Abel offered how Abraham went, how Noah built, read Hebrews 11 sometime and just look at all the action verbs and you see people putting what they believed into action. And so if we believe that Jesus wants to do a work of redemption, if we believe that Jesus laid down his life so that people who are far from God could come to know him, church, if we believe that, let's put what we believe into action in faith. Running the race with great faith means that we believe that that divine invitations and divine moments will happen. It means that we believe in the midst of marriages that are in trouble, in the midst of people who who are lost in addiction, we believe that Jesus can do amazing works of redemption and transformation in those places, which should give us a sense of missional urgency to tell people about the hope of the gospel, that they might find the life that Jesus offers. So let's run the race with great faith, believing that Jesus is at work and he can in fact do what he's promised to do. So this morning, as we dive into this a little bit more, I want to look at Matthew chapter 15. As we look at Jesus' example of how to engage in a world that's far from him and set an example for us as the church. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. says, Leaving that place, this is the region of Galilee, says, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. Anybody else read that text and go, what in the world? Jesus, what are you doing? This lady comes to him, and it says that she's suffering terribly. Her daughter's suffering terribly from this demon possession, and she comes to Jesus, and initially Jesus doesn't even respond. And then when he finally does respond, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Hopefully, warning bells are flashing, and lots of questions are being raised about What's going on here? I think this chunk of scripture is Jesus living out a parable as he tries to teach his disciples about the kingdom movement that he's about. So let's look at some other observations here. I want you to notice at verse 21 it says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, this theme of withdrawing is really important. It's a theme throughout Matthew. Jesus is in Galilee, a predominantly Jewish region, and it says that Jesus withdraws to that and he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon, if you read the Old Testament, these are like the epitome of sinful pagan places. Tyre and Sidon were not cities that a good Jewish person would even want to go to, these were utterly pagan. And so Jesus withdraws from a predominantly Jewish region, and Jesus goes to a place where people are known for being godless. Catch this, Jesus is moving towards lost people, right? He's moving towards a place where he knows they're in need of the gospel. And when Jesus gets to this place, we're told that he's approached by a Canaanite woman. This is important. If you look at Old Testament history, there's this time when the people of Egypt are in captivity. God frees them from captivity, and God gives them the promised land, which is in Canaan. Now, this woman is a Canaanite, meaning that in the history of the people of Israel, she is an enemy to the Jewish people. So now, they're in a godless region, and this woman, who in the minds of the disciples is an enemy of the Jewish people, approaches Jesus. The question is, how are they going to begin to respond? And Jesus responds in some shocking ways to begin to teach his disciples about who the kingdom is for. So Jesus' initial response when he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, the disciples would have been right there going, Yep, that's right. That's right. Only to the lost sheep of Israel. Because in the Jewish mindset, the Messiah was only for the people of Israel. They were the chosen people. But they forgot the promise to Abraham that says, You'll be a blessing to all nations. So there's this Canaanite woman. She is not someone we want in our company. And they're like, yep Jesus, you're not sent for her. You're sent to the people of Israel. And then Jesus goes on and and he he says this phrase. He says, woman, it's not right for me to take the bread that's meant for children and give it to dogs. Whoa, what a dehumanizing statement, right? There are places in Jewish literature where it talks about Gentile people and uses the phrase dogs. They're, They're not chosen ones. They're They're outside of this work. And so Jesus responds in what would be a typically Jewish way, and the disciples probably would have been like, yep, that's right. But this woman, she knows and believes something about Jesus. Did you notice in the way that she approached him at the very beginning in verse 22? She says, Lord, son of David. This is messianic language. And so this woman approaches Jesus and she says, I know you're the Messiah. I know you have the power and the ability to heal. She has great faith. She believes that Jesus can heal her and she goes chasing after him. She pursues him. She comes to Jesus saying, I know you can heal me. And so when she makes this statement, listen, Jesus, even the children or even the dogs eventually get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What she's saying, that it's hard for us to pick up on, what she's saying is she's saying, Jesus, I know this messianic work of salvation that you're doing. I know it begins with Israel, but I know it doesn't stop with Israel. I know, Jesus, that the work of salvation that you're unfolding is meant for people like me too. And Jesus begins to teach his disciples, listen, the kingdom of God is bigger than just the the chosen people of Israel. It starts there. It does not end there. This is an outward movement of the kingdom of God to all people. And I imagine when Jesus says, woman, you have great faith, I imagine him cracking a smile, looking warmly at this woman and saying, woman, you have great faith. Because she gets something. She understands the work and the mission and the movement of Jesus in a way that even the disciples don't get. They want it to be something that's just for them. No, 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 no. This work of Jesus is just for us. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not. This is a movement that will revolutionize the world and people who are far from me People that live in a place like Tyre and Sidon, two cities that are known for their godlessness, the message of Jesus and the hope of the gospel is meant for them too. So the question becomes for us, how do we respond? How do we begin to push into this? I think if we're going to take seriously the mission of Jesus, I think there are some things that we need to resist. So we're remembering our mission, we want to run with great faith, believing that God can show up and redeem all things. But church, there's some things that we need to resist in this process, and I'm not talking about cultural things out there we need to resist, I'm talking about things with us that we need to resist. I think the first thing that we need to resist is complaining. I think we need to resist complaining. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says this, Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God in a warped and crooked generation. Do you think we could call our generation warped and crooked? It's pretty lost, right? It's in need of Jesus. He says, as you do this, he says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So Paul tells the people at Philippi, he says, listen, do everything without complaining or arguing, because when you do, your witness is enhanced and you will stand out like a star in the sky. Listen, church, we cannot get caught up in complaining about culture. And I think sometimes what happens is we look at the world around us and we just complain and say, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and, and, and we complain about it, but we don't take action. And I think sometimes complaining is a sort of convenient way to hold the needs of the world at arm's length and just say, it's lost. Nothing I can do. And so we just complain about it because it's an easy way out. And and, and I think, I hope the irony isn't lost on us, because I think sometimes when the church complains about the world, we complain about it like this, why do lost people act like lost people? Because they don't know Jesus, right? So I hope we see the irony in that. Church, let's stop complaining about a world and a culture that doesn't function according to the Word of God. Why would it? Culture is lost. We can't get lost in a cycle of complaining. It doesn't do any good, but let's remember our mission. Let's run the race with great faith. Let's resist complaining or arguing, because as Paul says, we'll shine like stars, and we'll stand out, and people will say, there's something different about those Christians. I think the second thing we need to resist is cynicism. We cannot get lost in a cycle of cynicism. And and here's what I think. I think cynicism happens because we lack the courage to get involved in the culture around us. And so it's easier to just get cynical and say, well, this can't change. But I think when we're cynical, what happens is we write off the very contexts as hopeless that we're called to invest in. When we get cynical, we look at the world around us and we say, ah, it's hopeless. There's not much I can do. And we write it off as hopeless when God is saying, no, 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 no. You want to know my heart? My heart is for lost people. The church has to be moving towards people who are far from Jesus to tell them about the gospel. And cynicism is something we cannot afford. Rather than being cynical, can we mourn and lament in the biblical sense? And here's what I mean by that. True biblical mourning is about a divine discontent it says, this world is not as it should be, and it drives us towards prayerful action in the world on behalf of the gospel. Do you see the difference? Cynicism says, I can't do much, it's hopeless. And and we see this very attitude in the disciples. They're complaining, they're cynical. Notice what they say in verse uh, 23. Jesus doesn't answer, so his disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, can can you send this woman away? She keeps crying out after us. She's suffering terribly. She's calling out after Jesus and the disciples are like, whoa, 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 Jesus, she's killing our vibe. If we're going to minister here, we can't have this woman crying out after us. Can you do something? Can you send her? And they complain about the fact that she's there. They're cynical about an ability for anything meaningful to happen in her life, so just send her away. Church, we cannot get caught in a cycle of complaining and cynicism about the world and the culture around us. We have to engage. So the third thing I want to suggest to you is we have to resist disengaging. Because to disengage and go, well, it's too complex. To be passive, as I talked about earlier, is quite honestly simply to just be disobedient. And we cannot afford to be disobedient because the call of Jesus is go. We are a sent people. So how do we begin to re-engage? I want to suggest three things for you as we begin to re-engage in the world. Not complaining, not cynicism, not disengaging. How do we begin to reengage? one of the first things that I want to suggest to you is that we need to begin to see inconvenient interruptions as divine invitations to minister. We need to begin to see inconvenient interruptions as divine invitations to minister. I mean, think, think about this with me. Let's set up a scenario to help, help this make sense. Imagine it's, a, let's say, a late fall Monday morning. You had a long weekend and you're coming into work tired. You ever have those, those Mondays? know what I'm talking about? It's a gray Monday. It's a little bit cold. You've got a hot cup of coffee, and all you're thinking is, I just want to get to my office. I want to sit down with my coffee. I want to ignore the 100 emails in my inbox, and I just want to adjust to a new week. Do you you know that feeling? So now imagine you're walking into work. That's your mindset, and out of the corner of your eye, you see that coworker. Right? You know who I'm talking about, that coworker that they just kind of rub you the wrong way. Maybe every interaction you have is sort of awkward, and you're like, I don't know what, we just don't click. So imagine you're walking in, and you see them coming, and you realize, like, uh-oh, our trajectories are going to meet 20 yards before the door, and I'm going to have to make conversation on a Monday morning, and I'm not ready, and all I want to do is go to my office. And you meet this person, and you're, hey, how was your weekend? Right? We start to make small talk. And maybe that person, let's say in this scenario, they say something like, ah, yeah, it was kind of a rough weekend. My wife and I are, you know, we're fighting. It's been, it's been a long season. Okay, good to see you. I'm gonna, but what if that inconvenient interruption, what if that's a divine invitation to speak encouragement, life, hope, truth, into the life of that person? And I'm not saying we get weird about it and say, hey, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ right here in the parking lot. That's probably too intense. I think it could begin with something like this. Hey, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Sincerely, I'll be praying for you. And maybe over time that conversation evolves and that person comes back to you and said, hey, you, you've mentioned praying for me a couple of times. I, you must, I'm assuming you're a spiritual person. Can I talk to you about my marriage? Church, let's begin to see inconvenient interruptions as divine invitations to speak into the life of people. Secondly, I think we have to, as we begin to re-engage, we have to recognize the importance and the power of proximity of being in relational connectedness with people. I think it's fascinating that Jesus leaves Galilee and he moves towards lost people. He goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon and he does life in proximity with people. Proximity is an opportunity to intentionally, spiritually invest in the lives of other people. Finally, I think we need to develop a kingdom perspective. The disciples in this scenario, they do not have a kingdom perspective. All they're thinking is, yep, she's out of God's plan. Let's keep moving. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. The movement of the kingdom of God is for all people. This message of salvation and hope and transformation and redemption and freedom from sin and addiction, Jesus says, this is for this woman. And he begins to teach the disciples what it is to have a kingdom perspective. Can I, can I tell you something that I just wrestle with? Those, those news highlights that we saw highlighted all sorts of things that are happening in our culture. The thing that sort of frustrates me sometimes is collectively, I feel like a lot of times the church and believers, we talk about current events in terms of, what does this mean for my safety? What does this mean for my economic stability? And what we're concerned about most in the current events and things that are happening is how does this affect me? Listen, church, when we begin to see things with a gospel perspective and we look at current events around us, our questions and our thought process begins to change. And suddenly we begin to ask in the midst of this thing, whatever it is, whether it's a protest, whether it's a refugee crisis, we have to ask new questions about how can we be faithful to the call and mission of the gospel in this thing? Do you see the difference? Pastor Steve, two weeks ago in this series, talked about how civilized Christianity is all about our convenience and comfort and safety. Church, can I tell you, if we're going to take seriously what it is to, to move towards lost people, we give up convenience and comfort and safety and security and economic stability because the mission is what matters most. It's uncomfortable for me too. But I hope that we leave today with a kingdom perspective saying if I see everything through a gospel lens, how does that change the way I see the world? Write that question down, please. Wrestle with that question. If I see the world through a gospel, Christ-centered lens, how does that change how I see the world? I think part of what you'll notice is what you used to think were simply cultural issues are actually people suffering on the other end of that. And it becomes an opportunity for the gospel to be communicated. So how do we respond? The one thing I didn't want to do with this message is talk about the mission, talk about changing culture, and then say, hey, let's go change the world. See ya. And then you walk out of here going, I have no idea what to do. Because if we talk about changing the world, sometimes it's so grandiose that it's like, ah, that's, that's a great sentiment. And sometimes preachers are good at great sentiments, right? We make these great statements, and everybody leaves going, I don't know what you want me to do with this. So I want to leave you with three tangible things that we can do to respond. I call it the 911 response. And here's what I want you to do. Nine. Take nine minutes On your commute into work, pray for your workplace. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your boss. Maybe you drop the kids off at school. Pray for your kids as you're dropping them off. Pray for their teachers. Pray for their friends. Pray for the administration of that school building, that they would be open to a move of the gospel in their lives personally. Maybe it's the kids leave for school and you're home alone. Pray for your neighborhood. Pray for the community that you're part of. Pray for people who don't know Jesus. Take nine minutes and just pray for a move of God in the places where we live and work and and reside. Nine minutes to pray. One, who is one person that you can intentionally spiritually invest in? One person. I think the movement of the kingdom is all about person to person. Who is one person that you can intentionally invest in? Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend who lives a couple states away. But think about one person that you can be intentional to spiritually invest in. And finally, the last one, what's one moment that you can seize each day? One moment that you can seize to have a spiritually intentional conversation. And again, I'm not talking about something that's super weird and socially awkward. Maybe there's moments like that, and let's push into those when they come. Maybe it's something as simple as you're out to dinner and a waitress is just really rude. You ever have that and you think, fine, no tip for you, and I'm gonna write the manager and I'm gonna phone call? And... But what if in that moment, what if we stopped and set our offense aside and just said, You seem like you're having a rough day. How are you doing? I think it's about seizing simple moments to have a kingdom impact. So nine one one, nine minutes to pray, one person to intentionally spiritually invest in, and one moment each day to seize. And as we do that, I pray that we see a kingdom movement begin to take form. I think it's that simple. So this morning, part of how we're going to respond to is we have an opportunity to take communion this morning. And we serve open communion, which means you don't need to be a member of the church. All we ask is that you know Jesus as your Savior. And as we take communion this morning, I want you to think about the call and the mission of Jesus. Because we see in communion, Jesus laid down his life, dying on the cross for us, that we can have life and have hope. And so as we take communion, it's a reminder of Jesus' sacrifice for us, but it's also a reminder of God's love for the world and our call to go and reach that world. So as we take communion this morning, I pray that that's front and center of your mindset.